Okay. So, uh, you know, welcome. We're at uh, week 33 of the Hot Isle, and uh, I'm excited. We've got another great guest this week, but first, let's talk about ourselves. So, um, you know, I'm Brian Carpenter. I'm one of the co-hosts, and with me I have... Brent Piatti. Good morning, everyone. Ah, Brent. I'm so happy to see you this week. You're looking good. Hey, thanks, man. I'm in Boston. It must be the water. Yeah, it is. It's the it's that uh, amazing water. I hear there's tea in there. So um, <laughs> the goal of the show this week is we're going to talk about a lot of things. It's going to sound a lot like big data, analytics. Uh, we may even lean into Internet of Things. This is going to go anywhere, and we're not in charge. Matter of fact, our guest is in charge. Um, and so, And if you're having trouble with the curve, I hear he can help you out as well, or at least his son can maybe. So uh, with us this week, we've got John Thompson. John, thanks for joining us. Thanks, guys. Nice to meet you, Brian, Brad. I, I hope you're feeling good this morning. I am. Yeah, it's a, it's a great day. So, um, you know, we, we, we've learned a lot about you, right? So I know you're an expert in many things, and uh, including how tall Bill Schmarzo is. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, we've, we we want to talk about a lot of different things, data warehousing, uh, leveraging data for competitive advantage, um, you know, maybe Dell's perspective on what you guys are looking at for the future of those things. Um, but, you know, let's let's talk about why we have you here. Um, right now, I have you as the general manager of advanced analytics at Dell. Is that your, did we, did we do our research right? You did. That's my title. Absolutely. Yes. Awesome. So what does that, what does that mean? What would you say you do here? What do I do here? That's a great question. Other than uh, be a counterpoint of reality against Bill Schmarzo, uh, not much. Uh, actually, uh, Bill and I have been part of the same industry for many years, and uh, you know, it's it's evolved from you know simple extraction, transformation, and load or ETL, what people would call it, to building databases, to building business intelligence, and now we're all the way up to advanced analytics, which is taking basically math and algorithms and applying it to business problems. So we work with people on understanding how to reduce customer churn, how to improve product quality, uh, you know, a wide range of different things that are people people are interested in. So any kind of phenomena you want to either lessen or improve, that's what we help people predict. So John, you know, in addition to, to your awesome title now, you've got a pretty awesome lineage, right? So I'd love for, for you to tell our listeners uh, kind of about your past and what led you to where you are now, because I think it's important. Uh, and you, you've been doing this for, for a, quite a long time. Yeah, 32 years. So uh, it, it's been intriguing and interesting all the way along uh, the path. I was at IBM for a few years, and I ran into my old boss at O'Hare. You run into everybody at O'Hare, it seems like. And, uh, you know, we were standing there talking and he said, geez, John, you know, that you know, 15 years ago when you were all excited and wound up about analytics, I thought you were a little bit off the beam. But that stuff has really come into being in vogue. And I said, yeah, I, I think it's going to be in vogue for a long time. So I've been doing this for 32 years, as you pointed out, Brent. And, uh, you know, I started out as right out of college. Just, you know, I was always intrigued by information and data and how people made decisions with with information and data. And I started working at a small company called Metaphor, and that's where Bill Schmarzo and I met. And I went and worked at places like Miles Labs, Coke, Coors, Anheuser-Busch, Pillsbury, uh, Kraft, uh, just the list goes on and on and on. And really what people were interested in is, is simple things like how do I predict that the raw materials will get to the factory on time? How do I know what kind of people will buy my products? How do I understand which test markets are the best test markets to try my products in? So what we really started to do was just to take data from various transactional systems and bring it together in different ways and then do reports on it and do what if analyses and build graphs and sit in rooms with people who are really smart and have them pepper us with questions. So it's been all the way from just finding information to combining it to analyzing it in a in a for, in a reverse looking way, uh, you know, just what ha happened, all the way to now to predicting what's going to happen in the future. So it's it's fun, it's great. I mean, you know, during the morning I'll be talking to people at a, a pharmacy company about how to predict quality of of product. In the afternoon I'll be talk talking to an electric company to make sure that we can predict when their transformers may fail. 
And then in the afternoon, I'm talking to a consumer packaged goods company about, you know, which customers like, uh, you know, the chocolate chips versus the peanut butter and chocolate chips. So it's one of the only careers I know that you get to talk to everybody about what they're interested in. I think you probably have to sample all those things, too. You know it. You know it. <laughs> well, speaking of predicting the future, we do a segment every week called This Week in Tech History. And uh, it actually works out pretty well. So uh, in April of 1965, Gordon E. Moore, the co-founder of Intel, coined Moore's Law, which states that every 18 months a processor will double in speed. Um, so it's actually not a law. So it's just a, uh, so it's not natural or physical, but it is a prediction. So um, I don't know how they did it in in that time, John. Maybe maybe you're more uh, privy to to how they came up with that, but. Uh, I found it to be interesting, um, and and even more so. Well, no pun intended. Well, um, Moore's law was revised in 1975 to state that the speed would double every 24 months rather than 18. And then in 2015, Gordon said that uh, he saw the law dying in the next decade or so, and then Intel confirmed it later that year. Basically, that the pace of advancement. Um, had slowed to every two and a half years. So, uh, did, did you have any any influence or insight into into Moore's law? Well, it's it's a well known. It is referred to as a law, but it's really a theorem um, more than anything, or a postulate uh, that Gordon made, and it's turned out to be you know quite accurate. So, good on Gordon for seeing that observation. Uh, yeah, the, it really gets down to, you know, the number of, I mean, if you really dig into it, it's the number of, of transistors you can put on a chip. So at some point you physically run out of room, you know, you just can't make them smaller. You can't pack them any closer because you start to get electrical and thermal impedance. So, uh, while that is true and we have seen that curve flatten, that doesn't mean that we're going to lose processing power or that we won't be able to continue to have more and more powerful environments. There, you know, at, I was at University of California at San Diego, US, UCSD last week, and they're working on an environment where they're going to take CPUs, GPUs, FPGAs, and quantum chips and put them into a uh, heterogeneous computing mix and then optimize for analytical work workloads. So that's just one example of how we're going to see creativity. Uh, also in that mix, a little call out to IBM is that there's going to be the True North chip, which is the first neuromorphic, uh, com commercially available neuromorphic chip in the world. So it's based on how our brains work. So it's it's not about how many transistors and silicon we can get of course that's useful and necessary and a foundational layer but it's more about how many neurons can we get into an environment so how can we make computers think i mean i'm not talking about you know scary ai movies or anything like that these environments are really built to augment how brian does his job how brent thinks about predicting when the red sox will win the world series and things like that so it's Yes, at the simple level, we are losing this well-known curve, but at a more complex level, we're gaining a great deal of capacity in the computing environment. So while the simple rule may be lessening in effectiveness, the more complex environments will take over. Yeah, Very and, cool. And, uh, of course, in, in six months, that means that uh, Dell will figure out how to uh, democratize it into the uh, R730 Gen 14, right? Like it's, yes. uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, absolutely. <laughs> I'm looking forward to the neural chip in, the, in, in my laptop because I need it. So – uh, you know, this it's very interesting, right? You you mentioned that your your manager a while back was like, uh, you're really interested in this analytics thing, and I think you're you're you know a little maybe a little high on how excited you are, and all of a sudden it proved to be right. Was there something naturally in your career that you you know you were kind of doing that led you into the analytics space, and was it like what was it that made you go, man, I can't get enough of of doing math on people's problems. <laughs> well, yeah, it was it was one of those things I started out of college. I was an assembler programmer for all you, you know, 50 something year old people that, that remember assembler, you know, they're going, oh, wow, there's one of us still alive. And, you know, and I really found myself doing things that I wasn't very interested in. You know, I worked for a big company and we were counting railroad tank cars, which is not as exciting as it sounds. 
uh, you know, and then, you know, figuring out, okay, you know, what welder worked on what tank car and how do we allocate different costs and things like that. And I found myself working in, you know, systems that were transactional in nature and critical to the business, but dull as dishwater. So I just really wasn't excited about what I was doing, what I was building, what I was working on. And then I found about found out about this idea of information management and information for decisions. And I thought, oh, that's really cool. And and for some reason, that just sparked an interest in me that has continued on for decades and decades. So it's it's endlessly fascinating to talk to people about their business problems and the impedance they see in how their business is operating. So, you know, the whole thing about data and intelligence just really spoke to me. And it's it's been, you know, the, the, the overriding theme of my career. So I'm just wired that way. I, I've just always believed in data and I've always thought decisions and analytics were just endlessly interesting and that's just that's just me yeah and it's interesting because when this uh, analysis was being done in the past it was being done in uh closed doors where somebody was kind of told go figure this out and now i feel like it's um a, yeah. a power where even though i can barely count with my fingers as you were talking about railroad cars i was like i'd run out of fingers after 10 and i don't know what i'd do because <laughs> i'm not taking my socks off um, so, but there's obviously an evolution, right? So in the beginning you were doing things in assembly code, um, and we've seen kind of big jumps, right? There was, uh, there's kind of eras of, of analytics and we start to get into things like warehousing and then we get into all these other kind of things. Can you walk us through kind of, uh, you know, the big steps as things have gotten a little bit more interesting each time? So you mentioned ETL with, you know, standard database, relational databases, stuff like that. So, uh, are you, can you walk us through that real quick? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, it started out, you know, back in the 50s, really, with operational research. You know, there was guys with the slide rules and statistics and all that kind of stuff, trying to figure out how to make things go faster and have better quality. And then it, it jumped up in the in the 60s and we started to see, you know, things around databases. It's funny, you know, now we all just take databases for granted, Oracle and, and you know, uh, Teradata and all the databases are out there. But when I started back in the 80s, you know, it had become the, it was an interesting idea to have a database. And there were a company, two companies called Teradata and Britton Lee. And if many people think about this and remember, you know, the way most innovations start is they start out in hardware. So Teradata and Britton Lee were actually hardware appliances. So databases had not been written into software yet that was independent and commodity and could be run on, you know, computers as we know them today. So we had databases that were specialized hardware machines, and then we had relational databases, and then SQL was invented, and then we moved into, you know, people now, most people remember Netiza as being acquired by IBM, and then we had things like Cognitio, start, or White Cross, and then Cognitio started the in-memory database kind of environment, and now we have Apache, uh, Spark, and Hive, and, and Hadoop. So all these things that we now see as innovations like in-memory databases and SQL and things like that have a lineage of maybe 30 to 40 years behind them. So now we've moved into Hadoop and, and we've broken out of the, the tyranny of structured data. It used to be when I started out, we only looked at you know hard numbers. If it's a six, we can look at it. But if it's you know the word 30, or if it's the dog jumped over the fence, we can't, we couldn't analyze that. So now we've gotten to a point where all the data can be, you know, subject to our, our inquiry. So we look at text, we look at images, we look at wave files, we look at voice, we look at numbers, and we combine them all together in very intriguing ways. So, you know, we went from hardware specific, you know, appliances to software, to in-memory, to faster and faster uses of analytics. And now we've moved into an era where, you know, at Dell, we, and, and everybody has their different segmentations, but, you know, given that we're geeks, we all have segmentations, of course. You know, we look at what we call data scientists or what we used to call analysts as those that are under 30 and those that are over 30. So I'm clearly way over 30. But, you know, we have the people who are over 30 are looking at tools like SAS and SPSS and those kind of proprietary tools. And those under 30 are using things like R and Python and other collaborative type tools. So, you know, Brian, you're absolutely right. 
you know, it used to be that the data scientists or the analysts were the people that were put in that room over in the corner because we didn't understand them and we couldn't manage them and they were a little weird, but they were very valuable. So now we have so many analysts in so many different places that they're just imbued throughout the business. So it's gone from a very unique and solitary and specialized environment, which there's many people still there, you know, experts in operational research and quality and things like that have their own domains that they operate in. But, you know, my son, who is 19, that you were talking about earlier, learning curveballs with Bill Schmarzo's son. And, and, you know, he's in he's in university right now. He's, he's 19. He's learning R. And he's sitting with all his friends trying to figure out how to do analysis just because they think it's fun. So, you know, the world has changed a lot from when, when I started. Yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like, you know, you this thing you've been talking about is big data. And I love how the term has not come up in the, the entirety of our conversation thus far. You, um, you just ruined that. <laughs> but I but I'm gonna go ahead and I'm going to yeah, smash the smash the mirror, smash the glass. We're, we're gonna jump into it. So big data, like the word, hate the word, whatever it is, um, define it for us. Like kind of wrap some context around this nebulous term. Well, it, it's intriguing. You know, it's a it's a great rallying moniker. You know, lots of people can say it. You know, some people understand it. It's one of those things that everybody can use in their marketing and and in their languaging and, and terminology. It's it's simple and easy. So, you know, big data has always been a moving target. You know, back when you know in the you know back in the 70s and 80s and I get well I guess late 80s. You know, when we started PCs you know, and they were coming out. You know, we had very limited amounts of disk space and RAM. And then if you had, you know, 10, 20 gigabytes of data, you had big data, you know. But now we've moved into, you know, realms of where, I, you know, when I was at UCSD, I saw a, a, Dell, a Dell supercomputer, uh, which is called Comet, had 47,716 processors. So, you know, that's a big machine, you know, quite large, has hundreds of petabytes of, of disk and, and tens of petabytes of storage or in-memory storage or memory. So, you know, now we've gone from a few gigabytes was big to petabytes is big. You know, but the real, you know, real point to be made here is that in my world, in advanced analytics, you know, I work with a guy named Dr. Tom Hill, and Tom is just absolutely brilliant. Tom always says in different meetings that Big data will always get bigger and there will always be more data, but the information quotient in that data will never rise above a certain threshold. So you can have lots and lots and lots of data, but it's really what kind of information you have in that data to make sense of it. So, you know, we look at it and say, okay, you may have petabytes of data and that's great. And if you've got enough money to store it, please do. But you really need the data scientists, the right tools, and the intelligence to ferret out what information's in there to make decisions. So, absolutely. And do you think that there's a difference between big data, like the, the, the like you just described, analytics, business intelligence, data warehousing? Are they distinctly different, or are they all kind of part of the same idea? Well, they're the same. They're part of the same ecosystem. They're they're definitely distinctly different in their profiles. Data warehousing, you know, it sort of came out of uh, you know the end of the pipe with kind of getting tarred with the uh, the brush of just being structured data. And for the most part, it is. You know, it's structured data that you just you you curate, you clean, you care for, you store, you stack up, you index, you protect. Uh, that was the data warehousing paradigm. Now we have the Hadoop paradigm, which is we're going to catch it all. You know, it's going to come at us really fast and we're going to grab it all and we're going to put it in a data lake or a data swamp or a data jail or, you know, you've heard lots of different ways that people talk about Hadoop environments. But, yeah, you know, it, it's, it's flipped the paradigm on its head, you know, where we were very careful about data warehousing, you know, we only put in there what we could understand. We could curate a lot of data, but we can only put in there what we knew was quality, what we understood, what we had cleaned, what would be integrated, and what could be structured and indexed the right way. You know, that flip that on its head. We catch everything that's out there. 
uh, which is good and bad because you end up with lots and lots of data. But then again, you know, you still have that small information quotient in there. So if you can't find that information quotient, then you're just stacking up stuff for the sake of stacking it up, which doesn't make a lot of sense. So that has changed a lot. The BI side of it has always been the access and the use of information. The BI uh, environment has now flipped dramatically. You know, last uh, in the last refresh of the Gartner Magic Quadrant, many companies fell off the fell off the quadrant, including Oracle. Others came to the fore, like Tableau. So we went from you know simple tabular and and a few pie charts to very visual, like ClickTech and Tableau and the visualization environment we've built inside Statistica. And then the whole advanced analytics world has really come to fore as well. So if you think of BI down here and advanced analytics up here, we see that those two are going to merge together over time. So, you know, the, the idea you've heard of the citizen data scientist, that comes from the advanced analytics world. So we're going to be moving these markets together in a way that you can take people who are analytically oriented or numerate or curious or intellectually engaged in data, and we're going to give them the advanced analytics tools that so the citizen data scientist can do all the things that a BI analyst would do, but also do predictive at the same time. So you mentioned it a couple of times, um, you know, Hadoop. I'd like to, I tend to think that it might have started the the entire unstructured conversation, but I may be giving it too much credit. Is that, I mean, are they really the ones who opened the door for the unstructured, uh, kind of the, the era of unstructured databases or? Yeah, no doubt about it. Absolutely. I mean, you know, Jeff Hammerbacher at Facebook and Amr Awadala, Awadala, easy for me to say, at Cloudera, he was at uh, Yahoo at the time, uh, both really started the whole dialogue around this when they were playing around with, with Hadoop and, and unstructured data and coming up with MapReduce, which was a great uh, way to process data at the time, and now we've moved beyond that with Spark and Hive and, and those kind of things. So, yeah, I, I would give them credit. I would say, uh, you know, absolutely. Those, those are the organizations and the guys that led the charge. And that, that's actually kind of where you're headed, you're headed where I'm headed here. I feel like they did open the door, uh, and they did a great job of it. And, it, you know, everything was hot and heavy Hadoop for a while. Um, and now my perception is, Hadoop is rapidly falling off the conversation as everything else has kind of leaped frogged that experience. So um, whether it be things around Spark or Hive, whether it be you know advances in other types of databases like Mongo and things like that that are similar but not the same, um, it feels like the actual um, relationship to Hadoop that everybody has is softening. Do you do you see the same thing, or do you feel like it's just? a piece of a whole now rather than a large part that it used to be. That's a really good way to, to call it out, Brian. It's it's really true. And, uh, you know, the being part of this industry now for over three decades, you know, you, you have a great deal or I have a great deal of experience and, and expertise in understanding how these things ebb and flow. So after you've seen a couple cycles, you know, you, you kind of get used to it. So you know, in the early days, I had a number of conversations with with the folks that were in Silicon Valley that were building Hadoop, and and I was always curious and and in some cases incredulous that you know their breathless pronouncements were that they were going to build Hadoop into you know this, and when they described to me what this was, it was a relational database. <laughs> like, you know, don't do that. You guys are so smart and so engaged and you have so much creativity. Build something different. We already have relational databases. They all have row level locking and concurrency and you know and, and indexing and all this kind of stuff. So please don't waste your creativity turning Hadoop into Oracle. You know, that just seemed to be a massive waste of time. And it, and it really looked like we were going that way for a while, you know, because everyone's like, oh, you know, we're going to get rid of Larry Ellison, we're going to get rid of Oracle and Teradata, and they're all the evil empire. And, and I'm like, that's not true. You know, yes, their licensing environments and their licensing schemes may not be what you want for the environment you're looking at, but Oracle and Teradata and Informix and Ingress and Postgres and Vertica and all these database companies have a place in the world. Michael Stonebreaker has not wasted his life creating databases that are going to go away. Michael is, is a brilliant man and he's created many different data environments that we benefit from. 
it would be just a shame if we wasted all our time recreating that in Hadoop. So now we see that softening. And Hadoop is a great environment for stacking up lots and lots and lots of data. But now we've moved on and we have a more informed view and we have Hadoop and we have Spark and we have Hive and we have all these different tools that can be built together in an ecosystem. So I look at, you know, uh, large databases like Teradata and in in-memory stores like, uh, you know, Cognitio and those other things is very, very complementary. And I see that with Hadoop and Spark as well. So now we're moving into a, I'd like to think we're moving past a post-hype world into an environment where reason seems to be catching hold. And we're looking at it and saying, okay, you want to stack up petabytes of data or maybe just terabytes of data, and you want to do it in a way that you can find the information quotient. And then once you find it, you move that into a Spark environment, and then you just interrogate it intensively. You can do that. And now we're coming to an environment where, you know, the visual layer is there, the advanced analytics layer there, the data management layer is there, and you can do it in a way that it's not going to break the bank. It's not going to be fiscally onerous to do such a thing. So long answer to, I think, yes. Yeah, I, I like the answer. And you um, you put the ball on the tee for the next question. So you mentioned where we're where we've headed and what we've accomplished so far, and it's been pretty quick ramp, frankly. Um, oh yeah, there's some emerging trends out there of what's coming next and where things are going, and so we were hoping you'd discuss. I don't need uh, I, I don't need the 2050 view, um, but just you know maybe 17 through 20 of what's really coming and where we're tw tw uh, twisting towards, I guess. Yeah, it was it was intriguing. I had someone, uh, you know, the other day was asking me questions and, uh, you know, and, and we've talked I have a lot of experience in this area. And it was a, a younger person. And I, I love to talk to octogenarians all the way down to three year olds. They have a different perspective and they're fun to interact with. But this was a I think this kid was in his 20s. And, you know, and he was pretty much saying, you know, old man, you're you're just about ready to go on the bone heap and, you know, you've you've wasted a lot of time and money. So when will you get out of the way and let us take over? And, uh, you know, and we're going to we're going to have this all wrapped up in the next five years. And I said, well, I've been at it for 30 and I think my projection is that we've got about another 90 to go before we get to analytics nirvana. And you could see his face just drop. He was like, oh, I thought I'd have it done in six months. I was like, well, there's a lot of things to be built. So. You know, where where we see this going or where I see this going is that, you know, we're starting to move into an environment where there's a realization that the data scientists are kind of special snowflakes, the people who are really good at it. Uh, and then there's, you know, the, the rest of the world that is numerically or interested in numbers and numerically literate. So we believe or I believe the way we're driving our development is that we need to build more uh, railroad tracks or more guidelines or more bumpers for you know people to get into advanced analytics so they can clean the data correctly, they can generate the right features, and they can use the tools in a way that produce reliable and, and reliable predictions that can be used in a relevant way in their business. So we believe there's a lot of work to take the, the math-based products like Statistica and give them on ramps so people can go out there and say, I want to use transactional data, I want to use demographic data, I want to use psychographic data, and I want to blend it all together, and I want to do a prediction on who's going to buy my products next, or what is my next best offer. So that theme alone, enabling the data scientist, is going to take us at least three years, and we're working on that right now. So that's theme one. Theme two that we see is that even if you had all the money in the world and you had your own organization or Brent, you had your own organization, you couldn't go out and hire all the data scientists that you need because they don't want to work for you. They think you're weird. They want to live in Antarctica. You know, they don't, you know, they have a girlfriend in Zimbabwe or, or they, you know, they just want to be independent, but they want your money. So we're building technologies that will allow you as an organization to engage with them for their creativity and talent, but not lock them into an employee-employer relationship. We're calling it collective intelligence. So I can build a workflow that has a model that lives in Azure ML from Microsoft, 
Another one lives in Apervita, which is a healthcare marketplace. Another one lives in Algorithmia, which is another cloud-based marketplace for uh, people who are uh, data scientists to publish their work. So you as an organization can leverage all the smart people that are in the world through a, a loosely coupled relationship, to use a tech term. And uh, you, know, you can have the benefit of all their creativity and all their hard work and all their experience, but you don't need to have them on, on payroll as a W-2. So that's number two. Number three is that we think that this, this rise that we've seen of R and Python and these new languages is just going to continue to explode. So when you have a team of data scientists, like uh, one of our big customers, uh, Cisco, has data scientists all over the world. And, you know, they have a group or a couple people or a few people that like R. They have other people that like Python. They have other people that like SAS heaven forbid, and then other people use Statistica, and you know, it's, it's, it's a hybrid world. You know, everybody wants to use the tools that they're good at using, and I think that's going to be the way it's all going to work in the future, and, and we've built it in our tool that it, we don't try to force people into being a Statistica user. What we do is we enable the organization to have skill sets and tool sets and people who have different viewpoints and different powers and, and different ways of do, doing things. And we wrap that all together and we meld it together in one environment. So I think those are the th three things that you're going to see being potent, powerful, and make the and drive the evolution of the market over the next three years. No, I think it's really cool bringing the, bringing the community, community together. Um, you know, certainly we've had discussions with with others in the past and on different topics. Um, you know, tooling is a big thing, and enabling uh, developers or statisticians or data scientists to be able to do their job the way they want to. Um, but there has been some level of kind of wild, wild west, right? And kind of uh, the idea is to pare it down a little bit, but still give them leeway. Um, and where I'm going with this is, you know, I keep reading all these articles that. The, the majority of big data projects fail. First of all, is that a, is that a true statement? Uh, and what's your perspective on it? And, and is it correlated in any way to the litany of tools that are out there um, and the different ways that people are doing stuff? Great question. And, uh, you know, I'll take the data science aspect of it first. Um, having been an analyst and, and someone who's done this for a living, uh, you know, these, these folks are, you know, unicorns or special snowflakes or wild ducks or whatever you want to call them. And the last thing you want to do is, is squash their creativity. So, you know, anything that allows them to do what they do best in the environment that works for them, you know, we should foster that. So what I talked about earlier, I think is a good thing. I remember my first job out of college. I like to work at four in the morning to two in the afternoon. And my first boss, you know, sought me out about three months later and said, I don't know what's going on. I never see you, but your work is always done. And I'm like, well, I'm here in the middle of the night. And he's like, well, that's not the way it works. You're supposed to be here from nine to five. And I'm like, dude, I don't work well from nine to five. I'm kind of bored and sleepy and listless in the middle of the day. But at the night, I'm really, you know, rocking it. And that didn't work for them. But I think we've gotten past that now. So people can work in those kind of environments. Now, moving on to the question about big data, I, I do think that if you look at the, and, and everybody always looks at a certain window of time. So if you look at the certain window of time where we talked about Hadoop exploding to where we've seen kind of a drop off in, in the enamorment with, with Hadoop, yeah, I think most of those projects did fail. And I think they failed because it was driven by a lot of people in areas that weren't connected to the business. There were a lot of technology-driven projects that said, you know, go get a Hadoop and figure out what we're going to do with it. Well, that never works. So, of course, you're going to see a lot of failure in that kind of stuff. And But I don't think that was related to the tools or technology. I think it was more related to an attitude in the business that we saw at the time that was driven predominantly by fear that they didn't want to miss the train as it was leaving the station. So I think it's an artifact of time is what it is. Okay. Yeah, I was going to we, – we use a joke all the time about going to, to Best Buy to buy some DevOps. So I loved how you threw that in there like, <laughs> hey, let's go buy some Hadoops and, you know, give some Hadoops to him and some Hadoops to him and we'll all have Hadoops. Yeah. 
give it to her. She's really smart. She'll figure out what that thing will do, and you know, it'll be great. Absolutely. Uh, and and so in the past, we've learned about kind of uh, three genres, if you will, of analytics: or descriptive, predictive, and um, and prescriptive. So, are there more categories, or is that kind of a, a good summation of of uh, your world? No more categories, please. You know the, that that's really it. it. That's the way it works. Is that you have descriptive statistics, you do have predictive, which we're in now, and then you have prescriptive. Uh, there are a few companies out there that are touting that they're doing prescriptive. I don't think we're there yet. I, I, again, you know, Brian, you ask about how we're going to develop over time and where we're going to go. Uh, I do think prescriptive is on the horizon and we will get there, but you know, we, we haven't made it yet. And one of the things that will get us there is something that we're working on right now is, is what we're calling, we're automating data prep. And we talked about that a few moments ago, and we're also doing auto modeling. So we're not, you know, I, 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 I'm always happy to say that all good ideas have at least a thousand fathers. So, you know, if I have a good idea, there's other 999 other people that had the same idea too. So we're working on something that we're calling auto modeling. And in the uh, advanced analytics world, this is a well-known concept. So what we're working on is to take, you know, the data prep side, either manually done by an expert or done by a machine on your behalf. Then you bring it into the advanced analytics environment and you run, you know, it depends on the capability of the system. You could run five techniques, you could run 50, you could run 5,000 techniques. It just depends on how many you have in your toolbox. So we'll run all the appropriate techniques against that prepared data, and then we will tell the humans, you know, which is the best. So, you know, we're getting to a point of where we can do, you know, automated modeling, and then the people won't have to figure out, is it a, uh, a you know, a neural net, or is it a, a convolutional neural net, or is it, you know, something that k-means is best for, the machine will tell them. So we're getting to a point of where we're building up the capabilities of the software, building up the capability to handle the data, building up the ability to do the auto modeling. And then, you know, one thing we have to keep in mind is every time I have this conversation, someone always jumps up in the audience and we have no audience other than ourselves right now, but they always jump up and go, oh my God, you're building Skynet. It's the end of the world. You know, you are the creator of the Terminator. You need to be shot and killed. And I'm like, look, all these systems are built to augment human decisions. There's nothing out there that's going to take over the world. There's nothing that's going to, you know, turn us all into green goo or whatever people are talking about. And the bottom line is if it gets out of control, you can just unplug the computer. So, you know, there's there's a fail-safe mechanism called an off switch. So, that's where we're going right now. And that, and that's really good and it's uh it's kind of interesting, right? So when we talk about prescribing solutions and things like that, um you know, there's there's certain value to those kind of things. Um, but I think it, some of it has to do with, uh, you know, we have to get things in place that help us get to that point where we can actually do those things. Um, and that leads us to kind of the next the next part of what we're looking at, which is where things lie on the edge versus where they lie in the core as far as analytics as a whole. Um, today, we see a lot of analytics where, uh, again, you know, you put it in your data jail or your data lake or your big daters or whatever, um, when you the swamp, right, the swamp. Um, so you you have to get all these things and you have to bring them back to the house, right? You know, you got to and then you got to dress it and you got to throw it in and you got to you know you prep it and then you can use it. And so mm -hmm. we're seeing this shift now to where things are being processed where they lay, whether they lay on the edge or where they lay in the core. So what do you what are you seeing from that perspective and where where's the right use for those kind of experiences and what needs to change for that to get better? Great question. You know, now we've strayed into the IoT world, the Internet of Things world, uh, you know, and, and did it stealthily, Brian. So nice, nice segue. Um, so I do this you know, for a living. Yeah. <laughs> and you're good at it. So what we see is that, you know, we actually created some things and there's a couple, again, you know, the thousand fathers and all that kind of stuff. You know, we've created the ability to build analytical models, export those into languages like R, Python, SQL, Java, and then transport those models out into the edge of a network. So Dell has an IoT uh, division just like Cisco and, and many other companies. 
And, and what we've built is the ability, the ability to build these models, transport them to the edge of the network, and then drop those models into different kinds of computing environments. So a Tesla could be a computing environment. A gateway in a manufacturing environment could be a computing environment. So we're looking at putting models in the networks wherever it makes sense. So now we have the complete counterpoint to the big data story. We're really looking at small data, but fast data. So as opposed to, you know, if you did the math, it's not hard. This is not nothing more than arithmetic. So if you added up all the bits that were being generated at the edge of the network, the 86,000 times a light bulb says, I'm on every second, you could never bring that data back through the networks. We don't have enough bandwidth in the world to transport that data from the edge to a computing environment where it's going to be analyzed. So we need to move the analytics to the edge. And that's what we've done. And that's what will everybody will do in the future. So, you know, we're going to put it out there. The sensors will send it to a, a computing environment, which is maybe one of these gateways that have 10,000 sensors attached to it, and will compute the predictions at the edge. And so we, you know, you mentioned Cisco, um, watching what they've been doing, and you know, every time they, they have an acquisition, you you know, you obviously you read about it. It's interesting stuff, man. I feel like their last 15 bets with their with their pocketbook have been on what appears to be IoT. Um, so they seem to be betting heavy, and obviously, I you know I feel like you know that may be because of a shift, but also because of the network by which they run all of that data through, right? So they they obviously have an underlying conversation there. Um, yeah. You, you know, what do you think of their bets, and you know where what are you guys betting on? I mean, we know about the edge gateways. You, you mentioned the gateway earlier, by the way. I, I assumed you meant not the computers. You meant the edge gateway type stuff. Um, yes. So, uh, but you know. What do you think of their bets as well as what do you think of where are you guys going with it? Well, I think Cisco is a great company and, and certainly, you know, they own a lot of the networking gear uh, and they have, you know, their own uh, fog computing initiative that's out there. And it's a very well thought out initiative. So kudos to Cisco and their strategists for putting together a really compelling architecture and view of how this is all going to work. Um, you know, a few of their bets have been a little interesting. You know, they bought a few different companies and then somewhere someone in, in communications put IOT in the press release about the acquisition. But when I look at some of the core technologies, they don't really have anything to do with IOT. So, I, you know, 10 out of 15 ain't bad. The other five, I'm kind of head scratching. But then again, maybe I'm not smart enough to understand what they're doing. I, I, you know, I'm not privy. I'm not in the tent. Uh, so I think they're doing good, a good job. Uh, Dell you know, has jumped into IoT in a big way. We've created the whole family of, of Dell gateways that are, you know, really kind of cool devices if you've ever had them in your hand. You know, I, I've never seen so many connectors, you know, strung along one side of it. So, you know, the legacy environments in, in manufacturing and the wireless environments and all the different things that are out there, these things connect to very seamlessly. You know, I'm fortunate to be in an organization that allows me the leeway to do the things that I've done over the last two years. So we've taken Statistica, Boomi, and the IoT hardware that Dell has, has put together and created what we call native distributed analytics architecture. So we, as we talked about earlier, you know, we can put models anywhere. So we can put models all the way out to the edge of a network. And then as you move into the concentric circles of a network, you're gonna have more and more capable computing environments. So we can do, you know, scoring on a car like a Tesla, we can do scoring in a gateway. You know, as you move back, let's use a smart meter example, like in a city. So, you know, we could have a, a model that's running and looking at a, a, a you know, a zip plus four area or a zip code area and predicting which houses will have problems. Then we can bring that back to a city level. We can predict on a city level. We can bring it back to a regional level, bring it back to the core in the cloud or the central uh, data warehouse or whatever it happens to be, we can do predictions and all the predictions will be different at each level because all the models are different at each level. Now, the things that we have that is probably a little bit more mature than some of the other people in the marketplace is that we have a complete model management system. So we don't have to have humans managing all these different models. Think about it, guys. If you take this to the logical conclusion, you don't have one or two or three models you have one or two or 3,000 models. 
So there's no way any human can manage all those. You need an automated system monitoring those models and then deciding when those models have lived beyond their usefulness and what is the next step you're going to take with the next model. So, you know, thinking this through, this is going to be a very uh, robust, a very automated and a very interesting system that's going to help people understand human behavior, energy consumption, logistics, you know, almost every aspect of our lives. So if we look at, uh, you know, the, the, this kind of shifting landscape, you know, it's, it's, it's been around, but it, we're certainly we're evolving. We're getting faster. We're getting better. Um, but there's still a ton of moving parts and uh, companies absolutely want it. So talk about what Dell is doing uh, in that space, you know, not from necessarily a, a, a product perspective, but um, services surrounding that um, are things like, you know, analytics as a service popping up. Um, and are people consuming those types of services? Yeah, you know, it's it's a great question, Brent. Uh, you know, it's it's one of those things that we've been talking about IoT, and it's funny enough, I don't think we've talked about the cloud. You know, in the you know forty six forty seven minutes we've been talking, which is kind yeah. of surprising in and of itself. Way to go! Um, so Brent broke big data, <laughs> and you broke the cloud. That's awesome. So go ahead. Yep. Sorry. So you know, we do see that you know, and we believe that you know things like Azure ML and and these other cloud-based environments are going to be crucial to our success and we're working on that as well so we're going to be moving all our technology into the cloud and it's one of those things that it's not there yet but we do see an inflection point uh, where many enterprise software companies you know rewritten everything that they have for the cloud you know everybody's going to be going in this direction just because it's the way people want to consume you know, technology and services and information. So I do believe, I don't think we're there yet. Believe me, I, you know, we have to have the company saying we want this. We have to build it first and then we have to convince them to want it or they have to naturally want it. You know, whatever combination goes into the market dynamics there. But over the next, again, this is probably another three to five year prediction is that all of these things will move to the cloud. They will all move into a subscription consumptive mode And, you know, we'll see, you know, a way that enables people to buy it by the drink and allows them to consume it in their organization so it flows naturally into their business operations. So it'll come. We're not there yet. Very good. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. You know, obviously we've got this this, uh, looming uh, merger on the horizon. So I'm looking forward to bringing the companies together but also seeing what's going to happen um, as technology evolves and then how we're going to enable uh, that to happen. Um, I did I did pick up on something, you know, just kind of doing research for the podcast. The term was analytics enabled services. Um, is that something you're familiar with? You know, it's not something I've never heard that term before, but it's pretty much everything that we've been talking about. You know, it's it's giving, you know, a term to what we've been discussing. So if you think about it, analytics enabled services are really, you know, it's kind of Netflix, really, if you think about it, you know, you watched The Shining, so you may like Halloween three, you know, that kind of stuff. It's really, you know, a lot of people get wound up about it and go, oh, my God, you know, what are they doing in the background? But really what it is, is trying to do things that are more intriguing and interesting to you. So it's, you know, better movie recommendations. It's better you know, upsell, cross-sell on Amazon. We've all heard the story, and it's all happened to us. You know, I went out on Amazon 100 years ago, and I bought a book from my wife, and then for the next three years, I got recommendations on Girlfriend's Guide to Pregnancy and different things like that, stuff that I I couldn't be (laughs) less interested in. But it's really trying to fix those early faux pas of of trying to do things in a a rules-based or, you know, a very rigid way. It's trying to do analytics that bring more of a human connection to to different kinds of services and offering you different things that that are more interesting to you. Maybe the electric company comes and says, hey, you know, we're going to tell you when the best time to use your power is. I'm sure everybody would be interested in that rather than doing my laundry at 10 in the morning. I could do it at six at night or the vice versa. You know, it's one of those things that I think done right. Analytics enabled services will make everybody's lives better. And I think uh, I think Amazon's still working on that because they seem to think that I want yoga mats and 
they clearly they clearly are talking to the wrong person in the house. Um, no, I hear you. So you 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 mentioned though a couple of things right that you know Netflix knows uh, what movies I need to watch um, and apparently they know I like Jesse a lot from Disney Um, you know they you know there's a lot of things like that that they're doing Um, you look at these DNA services where you send your you know you swab your mouth you send it in and it tells you that you're four percent you know you're four percent American Indian and thirty two percent Swedish and a whole bunch of other things right and it's super cool. Uh, but then you look at the, the 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 other side of this, right? Is Netflix telling the government when you're at home or on the road and what type of TV you watch or who's using that data besides Netflix? And in the the DNA services, are the police using those as an information bank to help them solve cases? And if so, did you know that when you gave the information to National Geographic so they could map, make a map of everybody's chromosomes, which is the cool part of it, right? You want to know where where you came from, yeah. but you don't want the bad guy, the the good bad guy to know things because you feel like they're overreaching. So there's a balance story here. I'm much more uptight. So me, I, I like, I love the things, but then I think about what could go wrong and, and then I end up not doing it. Where do you see the balance of this data thing? Whereas we watch everything that happens in the digital exhaust of all of it, when, when it could be used for good or bad. Yeah, there's, there's definitely the opportunity for abuse. There, there's no doubt about that. And, uh, you know, I, I do... I guess I'm more of an optimist than most. Uh, I, I have to be, you know, given the, the my line of work, or I would just never get out of bed. But uh, you know, I think we need to move more towards a, a self-directed, self-managed environment where, and this is going to take a long time to get there. But I do think we will. I've certainly seen a lot of evolution over the last few decades, and we have much much more to go. But I think all of us should own our data. You know, every data stream that we contribute to, we should own it. So Netflix should let us go in and delete our usage history. 23andMe should let us opt in or opt out of who gets to use our data. And you really should read those agreements very carefully on 23andMe if you're going to do that, because there are some upstream uses of that data that you may not agree with. So everybody should read those agreements that they generally click by really quickly because it does make a difference. But I do think we'll get to a point of where either the government will mandate it or Europe will mandate it or something where we will have ownership of our own data streams. And we will be able to go in and delete our data. We will be able to take out the things that, gee, I really don't want them to know I watched those movies when I was by myself somewhere. (laughs) You should be able to pop those records out of your usage uh, profile if they're outliers or not representative of how you'd like to present yourself. So I do think we'll get there. Uh, there are, you know, opportunities for abuse. But then again, another thing to keep in mind is that, you know, a lot of people have concerns that this data is going different places and being used in different ways. Uh, you know, at the macro level, this is hard to bring all this stuff together and to do nefarious things with it. And there's not really that many clever people that are doing it. So I really kind of err on the side that they're going to screw it up before they do anything really horrible. We can all cross our fingers. Let's let's hope for the best. But uh, certainly, cool, cool, cool applications, uh, and and we're all going to benefit from that. Kind of speaking of the future, then, John, um, I watched the Think Chat, which is uh, like a YouTube series where you discussed analytics 3.0. Can you elaborate on what that means to you, and then kind of what's next in this in this world of analytics? Well, we've been discussing it. You know, when you ask me what's going to happen in, in uh, the next three to five years, that's Analytics 3.0. So we've been talking about it. We've been engaged in it. It's a, it's an exciting environment to talk about. And like I said, what what is 4.0? I, I don't really even know. You know, it's probably something I'll be working on, you know, right towards the end of my career. Um, but, you know, there's always going to be people that want to pick up the mantle and run with it. So, you know... As I said earlier, we and I wasn't joking, I think we've got about another 90 to 100 years to run on this track before we run out of gas. So, you know, we have a lot to build. We have a lot of safeguards to put in place. We have a lot of good people to employ and we have a lot of people to serve. You know, I, I'm not sure if you've seen the 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 use case at uh, at University of Iowa hospitals where we've helped re- reduce the amount of surgical site infection by 70 percent. So that's an IoT use case where we're taking data right off patients while they're on the operating room table, 
and helping them, you know, get back to their lives much more quickly and easily and saving a lot of money in the, in the, the, uh, in the same time. So, you know, for all the people that are out there working on trying to get you to, to buy a, more movies or buy more lipstick or whatever, there's just as many people that are out there that are trying to save lives with data. So I think we've got a lot of great stuff to do. So from a, when you talk about these use cases, right, when you hear somebody say, well, you know, I used, I used live data and, you know, the results were better, uh, you know, better healthcare outcomes, um, which in return has lower cost impact on the, the insurance industry, which, it, you know, really hit my pocketbook, right? It didn't just hit theirs, it hit mine too, because we all share those insurance costs. Those are yeah, really yeah. interesting, you know, interesting use cases. Where do we see some other like really novel use cases, especially, you know, in the university space where you're bringing our young minds in and they're using these analytics to do great things? Um, who, who are you working with that are really doing great things with analytics? Well, as I said earlier, I was just at UCSD last week and they're doing some intriguing things. You know, there's the there's the human genome and there's genetics and your DNA and things like that. And then there's all the, the stuff that's inside us, our microbiome, you know, the insides of our intestines and things like that. And the things that they're finding out about what we eat and the environment that we're in and the air we breathe and all the other things that we put in our body and the effect it has on the microbiome, which then affects our DNA, is absolutely fascinating. So we were out there last week looking at some of the, the work that they're doing in the microbiome and the analytics of, of how we can make ourselves better people. I'm just absolutely intrigued by the possibilities there. So I think there's going to be a lot of work that's going to be done at almost the, well, at the genetic level. You know, we're going to get down to the very building blocks of life and be able to do things with data that really drive our healthcare system to be data driven. Right now, it's certainly not. We have many, many great healthcare professionals and wonderful doctors and fantastic surgeons, but you know, there's a lot about the mysteries of life and the body and the gen genetic makeup that we just don't understand. So I think once we start digging down in there, there's gonna be all sorts of great stuff about diet, pharmacology, exercise, life in general, longevity, I'm truly intrigued by this area, and and it's um, it's pretty interesting, right? There's a, even Google is uh, investing heavily into the medical field because they feel like it's uh, their next evolution, right? They went from a, a search engine to an advertising business to a uh, maybe some sort of smart car business to a maybe or maybe not Nest thermostat business. We'll see the long term on that. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, not a robot uh, business, that's for sure. What's that? Yeah, and the robot business. I mean, they kind of put their hands in everything, and it seems like the the one bet that they're keeping their hand in is medical, uh, and a lot of people are headed there. But, you know, we always talk about these unicorns, right? You know, um, what is Uber doing to disrupt? What are these, you know, all these people doing to disrupt things, right? But wh where are the, um, the existing entrenched major companies using analytics to disrupt themselves like what kind of what kind of efforts are they doing to use their own business insights and frankly 50 to 100 years of business insights to disrupt themselves and continue to be competitive with this global marketplace well you you've heard a lot about ge you know jeff jeff Amelt has been out and been very vocal that he's created uh you know g digital in san ramon I was out there three weeks ago and met with uh, their CTO uh, and, and a number of their senior leaders about their predicts platform. You know, their view is that they're going to remake all their business units based on information and, and analytics. So, you know, someone is as, as big as GE and as important to the uh, global economy is making a bet, you know, then it's it's pretty widespread that people understand that. You know, as far as, as how people are changing their business and what they're doing with analytics, you know, it's a, it's a great question, uh, but it's often one of the most uh, closely held secrets. You know, that's, that's always been uh, a, a challenging part of my career is that as we've gone through and found, you know, intriguing insights for organizations like British Telecom and Coke and Pepsi and all these different people, one of the things that they do ensure is that before the project, we sign documents and say we will never talk about what they did. You know, so, you know, we do all sorts of things that make a difference in all our lives and the prices we pay and the products we get and the services and the bundles. We're not allowed to talk about it. That's too bad. They need to be out there talking about what they're doing because it keeps them relevant. 
Um, and that's the thing is, you know, the GE commercials where the kid is um, talking about how he's going to go work for GE uh, on trains. <laughs> that's a funny. One. And it's a great commercial because they're, it's real, they're making fun of themselves, but teaching people that they're changing. Um, yeah. And, you know, we see Coke changing in the way that they do, do certain deliver certain things at the end point. Um, but it'd be, it's really fascinating to watch everybody else do it because there's these things that you're endeared to and they're really keeping it private and we don't know if they're succeeding or not. And if we had involvement, we could help them understand if they were or not. So. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great, uh, perspective, Brian. And, and usually the way it works is that, you know, we can't really be involved in it because when we help with the, uh, you know, the insights and the analytics, they're at the most, uh, profit. They're, they're taking as much share and making as much margin as they can. So when we move on, we're not there to really encourage them to publicize it. But if they could look at it in a way that after they've taken margin and after they've taken share and they've, they've gotten their strategic advantage out of it, then they could open it up and they could crowdsource different insights like you talked about. And that would actually probably prolong the positive benefit of the analytics. So that's a really cool idea, not one that I had ever thought of. And so, we, you know, that's uh, you can give it to everybody. It's free. I'm going to give it to you. Um, <laughs> Thank you. And, I'll take uh, it. you know, it's really just me being nosy because I, I have fear of missing out really bad. So um, but, you know, so let's give a we're, we're towards the end here. Um, we always ask everybody, you know, as you're teaching us, you know, what is this thing we haven't asked you probably we forgot to or something. Um, give us that takeaway, that thing where you tell people as you send them away with food for thought, where do they need to be looking for? their their next analytic experience their conversation where are they taking maybe it's a career advice for people who are interested you can go anywhere with this and frankly if you just want to tell us your favorite restaurant we're okay with that too so just you know um give us a little takeaway and then uh you know we're going to send this out all right uh napolita in Wilmette, illinois is a new uh, italian eatery which is fantastic they imported their oven from uh from from uh uh, Naples, I guess it is, in Italy. So that's a great restaurant to go to. Uh, Bavette's in Chicago, great steakhouse. Uh, but beyond that, uh, you know, I, the, I'll take it in two, two perspectives. You know, as consumers, let's not be so concerned that organizations are, are going to do analytically uh, enriched offerings for us because more than likely it's going to make our lives easier. So let's, let's damp down the paranoia a little bit. I think we're okay there. Uh, as far as organizations go, you really should look at your strategic processes, you know, how you price things, how you build products, how you message them, how you market them, how you, how you, you know, formulate them in your organizations. And you should bring data and analytics into every one of them because it's going to happen in, in, in those are the strategic areas where you can make the most money. So look across your organization, pick one, make a bet and go at it hard. You know, and then you'll see the results, you know, dabbling across 10 or, you know, that generally doesn't work very well. So those are my insights for the day. Awesome. Well, thanks for the insights, John. So we're going to go to wrap this up, but I uh, wanted to uh, ask you a couple questions. Uh, you've been keynote speaker or doing speaking engagements at uh, MEMS, at Dell World, uh, at Earl. Uh, I don't know what MEMS or Earl are, but uh, definitely know what Dell World is. Um, do you have any other speaking engagements coming up? Where can we find you next uh, in the kind of in the public light? Well, I'm in Boston today at the Hotel Commonwealth. So if this gets published today, come on over, everybody that's in Boston. Uh, you know, I do end up talking at every Dell World. So that comes around every year. And then, you know, I end up at some of the TDWI shows and, and Gartner shows and some of the, the things like that. Uh, the, the MEMS and the Earl conferences, those tend to, to come up in, on an ad hoc basis. And, and I do them because, you know, I think analytics is going to be everywhere and I think everybody needs to understand it. So thanks for the opportunity to, to plug me in where I'm going to be. Yeah, no problem. And, and for those that want to continue the conversation with you, it uh, looks like you're on Twitter. Um, so yeah. is that a great place to, to kind of ping you and, and get some more, get some more questions answered? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm pretty accessible there. Uh, John K Thompson at linkedin.com. And then on Twitter, it's, uh, John K Thompson 60. Uh, so I'm always posting different ideas that I have and frustrations and, and insights and things like that on LinkedIn and Twitter. So yeah, join the conversation. I'm, I'm open and willing and interested to hear what everybody has to say. So. Yeah, thanks. 
Yeah, very cool. And then uh, for a final recommendation from you, are there any books or websites that um, you're reading? It can be uh, about the industry or outside of it, uh, but that you, that you think are interesting and our listeners should uh, take a look. Yeah, I'm, I'm reading two books right now. Uh, one is Missing Microbes by Martin Blazer. Um, Blouser, Blazer, Blouser. Uh, sorry, Martin, got your name wrong there. Uh, but it's all about the absolute horrific effect of the overuse of antibiotics on our gut micro or our gut microbiome and uh, the gut flora. And then I'm also reading the handbook of Marcus Aurelius. Okay, very cool. Well, awesome. Uh, John, again, thank you very much for being on the hot aisle today. We appreciate your time great insights. We look forward to continuing to see this analytics 3.0 growing and then the partnership uh, between EMC and Dell and as we move forward. Um, so with that, let's go ahead and close this thing out. Uh, my name is Brent Piotti. And I'm Brian Carpenter. And thanks John for your Thompson. time today, John. Thanks. All right. Have a good day, guys. Bye-bye. Let's do this.